Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is David Schlossberg. I'm a professor of environmental politics and the co-director of the Sydney Environment Institute. So welcome to this discussion of the ethics of climate geoengineering, which uh, is going to be based around a presentation by Professor Stephen Gardner of the University of Washington. I do want to start by acknowledging and paying respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation. It's on their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. And we always think it's particularly important that as we share our own knowledge and research that we pay respect to the knowledge that's embedded in Aboriginal custodianship of the country. This has been a place of learning about the relationship between human and non-human for thousands of years. Uh, and it's prudent to pay attention to that cultural knowledge as we adapt to a, cli a changing climate. So tonight's event is organized by Sydney Ideas. It's co-sponsored by the Sydney Environment Institute uh, and the Environmental Humanities Group at the University of New South Wales. Um, thanks to Meredith Hall, as always, with Sydney Ideas, um, to Michelle St. Anne, uh, Elizabeth MacArthur of SCI, uh, to Josh Wodak and Matthew Kearns, who've organized uh, the events today and tomorrow. And for those who are new to these events, I did want to say just a few quick things about the Sydney Environment Institute. Uh, we've been exist in existence for a little over a year now, and our charge is a little different. We don't just bring together individuals with an interest in environmental research in the social sciences and humanities. Uh, we bring together engaged and collaborative teams that are working on a range of issues. So we started with groups working on environmental humanities uh, and a large uh, interdisciplinary group working on uh, climate change and society, which is sort of where this topic comes from. We were joined by existing research networks on campus working on cities, on sustainable business, on human-animal relations, and we've helped to coordinate new groups on maritime cultures and on food security. So each of these groups has their own research agenda under the larger umbrella of the Sydney Environment Institute and host a range of events and produce uh, a range of outputs. So next week, for example, for those interested in animals, we're bringing in another philosopher. What is it with philosophers? Uh, Will Kimlicka, uh, who'll be giving a talk on uh, doing justice to animals. That's another Sydney Ideas event a week from tonight. Uh, we've got a series of events on food research at Sydney uh, that will be starting again in a couple of weeks. And then later in the term, we're going to be doing a, a large event on business and biodiversity. Uh, tomorrow, we actually have a special event that brings together uh, the award-winning Living Room Theatre, Michelle St. Anne's company, uh, with uh, campus infrastructure to highlight some of the new waste management and recycling procedures on campus. So that's Wasted at Sydney tomorrow at 1 o'clock in the quad. But tonight, tonight we're going to talk about geoengineering. Not about how to do it, but what thinking about geoengineering means and what the dangers of thinking uh, about geoengineering might mean. How we've come to it, um, how we might think about the various ways that emergency measures like geoengineering uh, might be justified. So we're going to have our main speaker, uh, Steve Gardner, and then two response from colleagues uh, at the uh, Melbourne Sustainable Society Institute, Jim Falk and Lauren Ricards, and then we'll have time for audience questions and discussion. Uh, but to introduce our main speaker, I want to introduce the Dean of the Faculty of Engineering and IT, Professor Archie Johnston.
Well, I can see why I was invited to provide the introduction, because there's an engineering in the title. And I thought uh, the talk's got not so much about geotechnical engineering, of course, uh, that's what I'm accustomed to, but then it's got uh, a break between the geo and engineering, so there is the difference. Uh, so, in fact, it is indeed my privilege uh, to um, introduce you to tonight's uh, first speaker, Professor Stephen Gartner, who's the Endowed Professor of Human Dimensions of the Environment at the University of Washington, Seattle. Now, my research of the name Gardner leads me to a, a conclusion that he either belongs to either the Gordon or the Jardine clans. And, and being a philosopher, he's accustomed to making decisions. So which one do you come from, do you believe? Well, it, it sounds like the Gordons, which is good, because the Jardins come from a part of Scotland that's really, the people are very, very mean. All Scots are mean, but uh, where the Jardines come from are very mean. So you're obviously a, a Gordon. Uh, his specialization is ethics, uh, political philosophy, and environmental ethics. He has also interests in ancient philosophy, bioethics, and the philosophy of economics. His current research focuses uh, on global environmental problems, uh, future generations, and virtue uh, ethics. Steve received his PhD in philosophy from Cornell, an MA in philosophy from Colorado, and a BA in philosophy, politics, and economics from Oxford. He's also had visiting fellowships at Netherlands Institute for Advanced Study, Oxford, Princeton, and the University of Melbourne. His current research focuses on global environmental problems, future generations, and virtual ethics. I draw your attention to his well-cited uh, works that include Ethics and the Global Climate Change, the, A Core Precautionary Principle, and A Perfect Moral Stall, The Ethical Tragedy of Climate Change. I think I would congratulate him. There's a certain iambic pentameter to the titles of his paper, which he perhaps did not realize. And he did not realize that a mere dean of engineering would be pointing that out to him. Much of his work is uh, interdisciplinary, and his audience is a, a broad audience indeed. They include the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and the UK Treasury Stern Review on the Economics of Climate Change. Steve also does some hard yards and teaching at all levels, uh, undergraduate, postgraduate, and research at the University of Washington. We are indeed fortunate tonight to hear the ideas directly from such a luminary philosopher as part of tonight's Sydney Ideas Lecture. Please welcome Professor Stephen Gardner. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a privilege to be here um, and to learn of my unknown Scottish ancestry all at the same time. 
I'm going to dive straight into this. What I'm trying to do in this, in this paper and some of my other work is enter into the early debate about geoengineering and, as you'll see, react to the initial arguments that are being made, really in an effort to enrich the conversation more than anything else, rather than come to definitive conclusions about what to do and why I say that should become clear as we go on. So what is geoengineering? Well, the term I'm referring to here is the use of the term to describe the intentional manipulation of planetary systems at a global scale. And usually, and especially at this moment in time, the term is being used to refer to techniques that do this to combat climate change. Leading examples are injecting sulfates into the stratosphere to act as a kind of planetary sunblock to prevent some amount of incoming radiation from coming in and so cool the surface. Cloud brightening to achieve a similar sort of thing by reflecting sunlight off, fertilizing the oceans, and sometimes in the more ambitious um, programs, put mirrors in space, again, to deflect incoming radiation. There isn't wide agreement on how more precisely to define geoengineering, and there's a lot of dispute about what techniques would really count. Partly because people generally regard geoengineering as a bit of a scary thing, and um, those who invested in certain techniques usually don't want their view to be classified as um, geoengineering. But my approach will be to try to sidestep the definitional problem by focusing on one technique that everyone, I think, regards as a paradigm case. If anything's geoengineering, this is it, and that's the sulfate injection that I mentioned, the planetary sunblock. So that's what I'll be referring to if there's any doubt. Now, there are some dominant arguments that have been made in the recent past as to why we should take geoengineering seriously. One is that we might confront a climate emergency and that geoengineering, such as sulfate injection, will be the only option to avoid a global catastrophe. Similarly, many other people have argued that even though there might be problems involved in doing such a sulfate injection, such geoengineering, then because we might face catastrophe if we don't, we would simply have to practice it as a lesser evil. So this emergency framing admits that there's something undesirable about sulfate injection, usually because people think it's risky. There might be um, side effects that we haven't foreseen and maybe couldn't foresee, and also because engaging in such a project might be unsustainable in the long term. Nevertheless, increasingly you see major researchers and institutions urging national governments to create research programs, fund them, and begin envisaging mechanisms of governance. Given the threat of catastrophe, we're told, geoengineering simply must be taken seriously. Now, at first glance, I think these people, these arguments seem to most people straightforward, irresistible, and overtly ethical. Indeed, many assume that they impose a strong burden of proof against any, and especially any, ethical worries about the pursuit of geoengineering. It's common in meetings and so on to hear people reason as follows. Well, a global environmental catastrophe would be, by definition, very bad for many things that we value. So don't we have a strong obligation to do whatever it takes 
to prevent this, including encouraging geoengineers. E indeed, in the face of this sort of threat, what ethical objections could possibly be strong enough to rule out geoengineering? That's the general attitude. And then more specifically, the discussion quickly turns to questions of how the value of nature, even if it's important, could possibly be important enough to count as a serious objection to geoengineering. And then followed by the observation that we've already done. Humanity has already intervened in nature in various ways. And so there's nothing particularly special in kind about geoengineering. My general thesis in this talk, which I hope will become clear as we go on, is that I, I think these are not the most important questions to be asking, kind of whatever it takes kinds of questions. And indeed, that if we do that, this obscures much of what's at stake, morally speaking, about geoengineering and in ways that trivializes our understanding of what's going on. So let me begin by mentioning three questions. First one is the one I'm usually asked when I first raise the topic. So geoengineering, are you for it or against it? I think this is a bad question. On the one hand, and I hope this is uncontroversial, no one favors geoengineering, I think, under just any old circumstances for just any old reasons. I think it would be morally absurd to propose geoengineering from preventing, to prevent rain from falling on a sitting president of the United States. More relevantly, more realistically, very few scientists, at least the ones that I know of, currently think that sulfate injection is justified. They think that it's too risky given our limited state of knowledge about the consequences. A little more controversially, I think most people would probably accept geoengineering under some circumstances, particularly if the only alternative were truly dire enough and the consequences of geoengineering were sufficiently benign and understood with very high confidence. But I think then that much depends on what would count as dire, benign, and high confidence. So given that, I think a better question to start with would be, under what conditions do you think geoengineering might become justified? And in particular, we'd have to consider here questions like what kind of threat would we have to have in mind, right? Rain falling on the president is not a sufficient threat. What kind of background circumstances would have to be in place? What kind of governance mechanisms would have to be in place to deal with the problem? What kinds of protections might be accorded to individuals um, who uh, are vulnerable to the consequences, what provisions for compensation would be made, and so on. But here I want to mention another question, which is going to be, in fact, the focus of much of what I want to say today. This is the contextual question. And this, is, this asks, what's the moral context of the push towards geoengineering and the shape of the policies likely to emerge given that context? Because I want to highlight the fact that geoengineering isn't um, being raised in some abstract, sorry, abstract sense, but is actually being embarked on um, for particular reasons in a particular time kind of global context. And I think that this influences how we understand what it is, what it's likely to become, and how we understand the ethical obligations. Why I say that will become clearer as we move on. 
Let me say something briefly about the justificatory question. One thing that's interesting about the justificatory question is that in a way the emergency arguments try to dodge it. Right? They state, they're stated in a very general form. It's an emergency, we must avoid catastrophe. And the term catastrophe is left undefined. None of the other potential conditions I mentioned, such as compensation, individual protections, are even mentioned. It seems to be assumed either that such conditions are met, or perhaps more likely, that their relevance is simply overwhelmed by whatever catastrophe lurks in the background. This dodging, though, is important. For one thing, it means that, as, they, as stated, the emergency arguments are opaque. We don't know what they mean. Right? A second thing is that it suggests that the widespread consensus among them, at least among some scientists and policy people, may be shallow. For example, people might have very different things in mind when they imagine the relevant catastrophe. Um, and here we might think, you know, there are some scientists, biologists, and um, ecologists might think the relevant catastrophe that would trigger the geoengineering is something like a sixth mass extinction. Whereas perhaps some economists think it's a 10-year drop in global GDP of 1 to 2%. Right? These are markedly different trigger conditions and probably have markedly different implications as well for the other conditions that aren't addressed. If you're going to try and establish some conditions, you might try something like this. It's often claimed um, that geoengineering is universally beneficial. Right. It provides universal benefits. Why? Because it saves us from catastrophe, I think, is the thought. Um, but of course, geoengineering as such, just intentional large-scale manipulation of the environment, um, isn't universally beneficial. Why? Because there's nothing about intentional large-scale manipulation of the environment that guarantees that it will benefit everyone. And there's nothing magical about stratospheric sulfate injection, which implies it will benefit everyone. Most obviously, some kind of um, sulfate injection, massive sulfate injection, which simulates a nuclear winter type scenario, would destroy life on the surface of the planet and harm everybody. Right? Less obviously, um, interventions, it's highly likely that interventions um, would harm at least some people while benefiting others. In particular, because early research suggests that there, even though you might be able to get a global average temperature, um, that would, would seem in the abstract to be desirable. And maybe even you could lower temperature in every place. It won't be to the same extent. And things like precipitation would move around from how they're distributed right now. So there's no reason to think that um, that actual, um, actual sulfate injection would benefit everyone. So if it's not generically true that um, sulfate injection or geoengineering benefits everyone, you might try some other kind of claim. Maybe the claim is that the only kind of geoengineering that ought to be pursued would be geoengineering that benefited everyone. But even this seems unlikely to be the right criterion. One reason is that it's empirically dubious. As I just mentioned a moment ago, 
the early scientific work already suggests plenty of scope for differential impacts, and many of these are likely to be negative. But we should also realize that universal benefit is an extremely demanding idea, even in principle, especially for a major global-scale technological invention. So it might be unsatisfiable in the real world. But a second kind of worry is that a universal benefit criteria might be ethically unreasonable. On the one hand, it might seem too stringent. Less demanding goals for geoengineering might be acceptable. For example, securing basic human rights for, for everybody at a modest cost to the richest people might seem an a acceptable ethical standard. But it also might seem too lax to demand universal benefit. There might be objections based on other morally relevant criteria than welfare, such as rights, justice, and legitimacy. Quick example of this, you could probably benefit me in a way that I agree that you benefit me if you broke into my house and tidied it up for me, because you're a compulsive neat freak. You know, you can't go into my house, you see the state of things, you just can't help yourself. You're going to clear everything up. I might agree that that has benefited me. Would it imply that what you did was legitimate or ethically defensible, that I had no complaints against you? No, it wouldn't. So even if everyone is benefited by a geoengineering policy, it wouldn't necessarily follow that they had no objections. So what I've suggested in this section is the answer to the justificatory question is not clear. Some of the claims that are made um, when scientists and others speak about the problem, the universe, that it's, for example, sulfate injection is going to benefit everybody, are questionable at best. And even the idea that universal benefit would be the right kind of um, criterion is itself um, ethically questionable in the sense that we need more work to figure out what would constitute a, um, a defensible answer to the justification question. But let me bracket that whole issue, because that's not really what the talk is going to be about, the rest of the talk is going to be about, and say, well, maybe what people are searching for here is an answer to the justificatory question is some kind of threshold for ethical decency. Right? We just want an answer that shows us what kind of geoengineering would be ethically decent. Well, with that in mind, let's now ask about the contextual question. What is the moral context and what difference does this make? Well, Unhappily for many people, I have a big, thick, heavy book on this topic called A Perfect Moral Storm, which aims to explain um, why we are where we are with global climate policy, i.e. not in a very good state at all. And it suggests that climate change poses a particular kind of ethical challenge. It brings together three or four, depending how you, you count them here, um, major challenges to ethical action. It's a genuinely global problem in a way that people often talk about. The spatial dispersion of causes and effects, it doesn't matter where you do the emitting, the emissions go into the atmosphere and in a pretty short space of time start affecting climate and therefore people anywhere and everywhere. Often this is analyzed in a tragedy of the commons or invisible boot kind of problem. Everybody pursuing their own self-interest results in a situation where nobody's self-interest is served. 
But there are also particular um, notable problems such as skewed vulnerabilities, where those who do most of the emitting are not those most vulnerable to the impacts, and the particular worries about the plight of the global poor and their vulnerability. But in general, there's a problem of people seizing short-term benefits, or sort of seizing benefits for themselves in one particular place, and passing on the costs to other people who don't necessarily share in those benefits. But I argue that in The Perfect Moral Storm that an even more significant component, an even more significant challenge is caused by the temporal dispersion of causes and effects. That we can take benefits now and then the emissions um, go into the atmosphere and in the case of carbon dioxide remain for typically hundreds of years but significant percentages, thousands, even hundreds of thousands of years. So that the costs implied by our behavior in terms of climate change are spread out across time. And this leads to a problem I call the tyranny of the contemporary. You might see a predictable bias in current decision making. The current generation will take its benefits and not take seriously the costs that occur in the future. That each generation might do that as it gets the ability to do so. With, so that the problem is iterated with accumulated negative impacts in the future uh, that become um, severe and perhaps catastrophic. And in this case, our behavior passes the buck to future generations. There's an ecological version of this where that crosses species. And there's also another challenge that all of this takes place in a setting where our theories are weak. There are many of the relevant areas here are, it's listed up there, are such that our theoretical work hasn't been very strong. In fact, there are many of them issues we've not even really tried to confront. So what are the implications of this kind of setting, this kind of context for geoengineering? Well, one is that we might see buck-passing geoengineering. We might see the same kind of patterns of predictable bias playing out um, in the geoengineering setting. Most obviously, perhaps, you might see some countries engaged in predatory geoengineering that's aimed at setting back their geopolitical rivals. But the one that concerns me most of all is what I call parochial geoengineering. That's where a generation would be tempted by a short-term geoengineering fix without much regard to the long-term consequences for future people. Because and one reason I'm concerned about that is that if we attempted by parochial geoengineering, putting geoengineering on the table might in fact make matters much worse than they might have been even letting catastrophic climate change occur. The second kind of live threat is the problem of moral corruption. If there's a large intergenerational problem in particular, we become judges in our own case. It's up to us to decide what to do and if we're tempted by passing the buck to the future, it may be that we prefer not to point that out when we talk about this problem publicly. We prefer to re-describe what we're doing in other ways that don't highlight this um, unpleasant feature of our behavior. And I think these are problems that we have to take seriously in the case of geoengineering, both buck passing and, um, and the threat of the corruption of the discourse. So now I'm gonna move on to say some particular things about the contextual question. And I'm gonna give three lines, sketch out three lines of thought. First, 
I want to say that even if a given sulfate injection policy would satisfy a relevant decency threshold under the justification question, it may still be morally repugnant. And I'll give an example to illustrate that. Second, I want to say that c concerns about the context raise doubts, raise doubts about the accessibility ability of decent options. And this suggests space for reasonable disagreement about justification, which casts doubt on the emergency arguments and lesser evil arguments. And third, that the threat of morally indecent geoengineering raises deep worries about both the strength of the emergency and less evil arguments and about what they obscure. So let's start with the first one and the problem of creative myopia. So there's a famous idea in um, ethical theory called the idea of moral schizophrenia, a particular kind of ethical defect. And it was made famous by Michael Stalker, and I'll quote him here to describe it. One mark of a good life is a harmony between one's motives and one's reasons, values, and justifications. Not to be moved by what one values, what one believes good, nice, right, beautiful, and so on, bespeaks a malady of the spirit. Not to value what moves one also bespeaks a malady of the spirit, and such a malady can properly be called moral schizophrenia, for they are a split between one's motives and one's reasons. This kind of split could be manifest in many ways, but I want to focus on one example, an example of what I call creative myopia. This is a situation where an agent invokes a strong set of moral reasons to justify a given course of action, but this course of action is supported by those reasons only because the agent has ruled out a number of alternatives more strongly supported by the same reasons, and where this is due to motives she has that are less important and are condemned by those reasons. And in context, my key claim is that some emergency arguments do this. They require the agent to endorse strong ethical concerns that she's otherwise unwilling to act on. Now that's all putting it very abstract, so I'm gonna to try to motivate this idea and the idea that this um, provides some kind of ethical problem with two rather extreme paradigm cases. The first one will still be somewhat abstract, so I pressed the wrong button again, didn't I? Um, the first one will still be somewhat abstract, um, but the second will be more concrete and hopefully get the moral juices flowing. So here's the abstract version. Agent one. Agent one is engaged in activities that he morally ought not be engaged in. He has a large number of options available to him to address the situation. When these are ranked according to strong values he acknowledges, he faces a set of possible responses from A to Z, where A is the best and Z the worst. Despite recognizing A is the best option, Agent 1 nevertheless refuses to take it, but offers no very serious, let alone adequate reason for doing so, moral or otherwise. Indeed, Agent 1 will not consider any of the good or um, decent options put in front of him, and neither will he consider the best of the more flawed alternatives. Instead, he rejects every option suggested from A to X, and again, without serious grounds for doing so. Nevertheless, Agent 1 is not quite comfortable doing nothing. Instead, he's willing to consider options Y and Z, and only these. Y and Z are pretty bad options, though not necessarily inherently morally bad or absolutely prohibited. Right? They're decent, morally decent in some sense. In particular, though it's possible that they may help a lot, they also bring with them very serious risks including a realistic threat that they may make matters much worse. 
However, Agent 1 claims that since Y and Z are arguably better than nothing, his pursuit of them is entitled to some moral respect, and therefore does he deserves some praise. In particular, he cannot understand why some are so keen to criticize him for focusing on Y and Z. Indeed, he protests, can't people see that not doing these may result in the catastrophe that we should desperately try to avoid? And why then can't they stop being fussy about the ethics of the situation and support a solution that might actually help? Okay, that's trying to give you the structure of the problem and I'll give you an idea about why you might worry about this morally. Well, first, from the external point of view, us looking at Agent 1, it seems that the emergency argument here requires an arbitrary narrowing of the ethical point of view, and that this strongly implies that Agent 1 is guilty of a severe abdication of moral responsibility. Given this, his appeal to the moral importance of Y and Z seems at the very least ethically out of place, and indeed, this may be so profound as to cast doubt on whether this is a genuine appeal to moral reasons at all. There are also problems from the internal perspective. If you are agent one, first, your general attitude lacks internal coherence. Second, this lack threatens to undermine the force of the intended moral requirement. At best, you can be acknowledging the force of the moral reasons only in a severely attenuated sense. And third, because of this, you may be at risk of losing your grip on moral reasons so that your attitude can be maintained only at some further cost such as self-deception, delusion, or profound alienation of reasons and motives of the sort that worries um, Stalker. That's all very abstract, and many people don't get that, you know, don't yet see moral import in this. So to try and give you an idea of why this might worry you from an ethical point of view, I'm trying to give a more concrete example. And unfortunately, it involves sexual morality. I tried lots of different things with my students, include human rights violations and all those things. And it didn't quite get them, but this one, they were good. They could get this one, so we'll see. Okay, so Wayne is married to a wonderful woman. On the face of it, they have a great relationship, and his wife assumes that this is so. But unfortunately, she's mistaken. Wayne has a secret. He likes to play the field and sleep around. He especially enjoys having sex with women in demographic groups at high risk of contracting serious sexually transmitted diseases, and he does this on a regular basis, but also continues to have sex with his wife. In neither case does he take any precautions, and his wife is ignorant of what's going on. What Wayne is doing is morally wrong for a number of reasons. His activities impose risks of severe harm on his wife and many of his other sexual partners as well. They also violate the relationship he has with his wife. In addition, in his more lucid moments, Wayne firmly believes that his behavior is frivolous as well as immoral. His life is very good anyway, including his relationship with his wife. Moreover, he admits to himself that the time and resources he consumes while engaging in his infidelity will be much better employed elsewhere. Though he enjoys his liaisons, Wayne concedes that they are not of high value even to himself. In addressing his folly, Wayne has lots of options. He could simply cease his promiscuity. He could also tell his wife that he's recklessly unfaithful. Failing that, he could pursue any number of strategies to minimize the threat to his wife and other partners. For example, he could practice safe sex, sleep with fewer other women, or women less at risk. However, Wayne is unwilling to do any of these things. In the later cases, even though he acknowledges that they probably would not make much difference to his own enjoyment and may make none at all. Instead, he prefers just carrying on as he is, ignoring the wider perils. 
If asked why, he would simply say that he's used to his life, whatever its flaws, and finds change uncomfortable. If pressed, he may even admit that he just can't be bothered. Nevertheless, this is not the end of the story. Wayne is willing to do something. A friend tells him of a scientist who is launching a startup company dedicated to finding a simple pill that can mask the effects of AIDS. The, the pill aims to manipulate the body's immune system so as to offset the effects of the virus. The work is highly speculative and does not offer any kind of solution to the other health threats posed by Wayne's activities. It's also highly plausible to think that it will end up having other harmful side effects. It's just too early to tell. Despite this, Wayne decides to invest $10, a very small amount of his disposable income, in the new company. Indeed, he tells himself that he's responding to a moral emergency and is morally required to do this and has done the right thing. As a result, he feels better about himself, even though he continues his activities as before. Moreover, he professes that he can't understand those who criticize his donation. Can't they see that donating to AIDS research might prevent a catastrophe that we should desperately try to avoid? Given this, why can't they stop being fussy about the ethics of the situation and support a solution that might actually help? So I think Wayne's emergency argument is morally shocking and for many of the same reasons um, that were um, problematic before from the external and the internal point of view, but I'm going to skip over that. Now, the point of the Wayne's Foley case is just to make more concrete why Agent 1 type cases are morally disturbing. And Wayne's case is supposed to be an uncontroversial kind of example. The interesting questions for us are not about Wayne, but whether there are parallels between our situation and his. And there are worries because there are parallels. The first one is that the that we have similar basic ethical problems posed by political inertia on climate change to Wayne's. Like Wayne's activities, our high emission levels impose risks of severe harm on innocent others. Like Wayne's, our behavior violates morally important relationships. And like Wayne's behavior, much of our emitting seems at least relatively frivolous in the face of the threat it imposes on others. There are also parallels when it comes to the fact of options. Like Wayne, we have quite a lot. We could do things differently using existing technology. We could invest more on research and alternative energy and in ways to design large-scale infrastructure so as to be less carbon intensive. And we could actually retrench. We could actually accept absolute sacrifices in quality of life and um, it's not clear that these sacrifices would be unwarranted. In addition, there's much to suggest that our quality of life might not actually suffer, even if we took hits in many of the cons relevant consumption variables. Third, at the moment it seems, nevertheless, that we're not willing to take up any of the options, at least in a robust way. The Royal Society report on geoengineering opens by saying, that decarbonization of the sort needed to avoid dangerous climate change remains technically possible, and that failure to make significant process here is due largely to social and political inertia. The fourth parallel is that therefore we seem to have a constrained policy. And given this, 
the new push within the scientific and policy communities is towards geoengineering. And in my view, at the moment, this push looks likely to succeed in the end. It's which is to say that it's plausible that, while resisting substantial emissions cuts, some developed countries will be willing to spend a very small amount of their national budgets, a few hundred million in the case of the US and the UK, pursuing scientific research on climate engineering. This is so even though they know that such geoengineering may not work, won't fix all of the problems even if it does work, and raises serious issues of its own, including of negative side effects and legitimate governance and so on. It's also highly plausible that this will be done without any intention of investigating, yet alone implementing ethically serious systems of global governance, political legitimacy, compensation, and so on. But the worry is, isn't this a little like Wayne's $10, $10 bet on the AIDS research? And if it is, aren't we in serious ethical trouble? So the lesson here is that even if sulfate injection can be justified, indeed above a decency threshold, the relevant policy may still be morally repugnant. I'm going to skip to the next thing now. But let me now turn to my second problem, the problem of internal constraints. So according to this worry, we have to notice first that political inertia might persist from climate policy in general into geoengineering in particular. This creates a threat to achieving a decent solution and puts indecent solutions to climate change, to geoengineering, sorry, to climate change through geoengineering back on the table. And here's a quick example of the sort of thing I have in mind. So the example of thinking about political legitimacy. So if you start with the idea that a basic principle of modern political thought is that institutions of are governance are legitimate only if they can be justified to those who are subject to them, then quickly you think that geoengineering institutions must be justified to those who are subject to them. But if a set of institutions is to be justified to those subject to them, it seems it must explicitly or implicitly invoke appropriate norms of justice and community. For example, it must not be seriously unfair or parochial in its concerns. Therefore, it seems that any successful argument for the permissibility of geoengineering must invoke these kinds of norms. But here's the kicker. A good part of the political inertia on climate change is caused by resistance to such norms. Hence, there's good reason to suspect that the attempt to establish legitimate geoengineering institutions will face similar resistance, and so that any actual decision to geoengineer or any actual form of geoengineering will be illegitimate in the sense that it violates um, simple norms of justice and community. Put another way, if we revisit the Agent 1 case, right, we might have to consider two kinds of considerations. One is that Though I focused on Y and Z, sorry, Y and Z as being the options to be chosen, perhaps some of the other options on the list, all the ones from S through to Z, include some kind of geoengineering. But F through X are much more ethically robust. So for example, perhaps S is a fully moralized geoengineering policy that includes robust compensation for negative effects of geoengineering, protections for individuals against certain kinds of um, 
severe impacts. Legitimate governance at the global level and intergenerational, sorry, intergenerational level and so on. But the thought would be, well, options like this, even though they include some geoengineering, are not really on the table and for similar reasons that the other sorts of options are, you know, um, strong mitigation adaptation things are not on the table. On the other hand, right, second sort of consideration, there are options that involve geoengineering that are worse than Y and Z, because remember I stipulated that Y and Z satisfy some minimal requirement of decency from the ethical point of view. So sub-options might include the predatory kinds of geoengineering or geoengineering that's only concerned with the interests of the current generation, say, and doesn't care about impacts on future generations and perhaps will make things much worse for them. And indeed, one of the main ethical worries about geoengineering is that these kind of indecent, um, morally indecent forms of geoengineering might be put on the table by endorsing a geoengineering approach. So what does this imply? Well, this implies that the initial whatever it takes arguments for geoengineering are not as irresistible as they first appear. Given wider political inertia, only some forms of geoengineering policy may be politically available, and the focus on geoengineering, sorry, on emergency arguments often presupposes ideal, good, or at least minimally decent versions are the ones we're talking about. But note that opposition to geoengineering doesn't, in my view, usually presuppose this. It assumes that in our actual context, there are real threats of morally indecent geoengineering and takes these as a reason to resist the push towards geoengineering. Therefore, we get the conclusion that some of the apparent disagreement about pursuing geoengineering actually rests on different judgments about the likely results of what we might call a calculated gamble that the actual sulfate injection geoengineering result will be at least minimally decent. And that gamble, I think, is something that people could reasonably disagree about. Okay. Last problem. Sorry, went too fast there. My last problem, the problem of evils. But of course, disagreement might be deeper than this, right? than just a strategic kind of disagreement about a calculated gamble. If we justify the geoengineering policy against a baseline of catastrophe, and if you have a really severe view of what the catastrophe might be, the problem might be with the emergency argument that actually it justifies too much, or at least justifies too much too easily. So if we're talking about a severe catastrophe, where billions of people are killed and suffer and so on, maybe even an extinction event, then almost anything is going to count as a lesser evil on one way of thinking about it. Right? So even morally extreme, or so say extremely morally indecent forms of geoengineering would count as lesser evils versus the evil of the supreme catastrophe. Right? So you might get things like genocidal geoengineering being justified as a lesser evil kind of response. Someone asks you, you know, the country that's going to do geoengineering is actually a genocidal country. It wants to wipe out um, some group of people. Uh, that's morally lamentable. It's deeply morally indecent. But is it a lesser evil 
than allowing complete catastrophe where billions upon billions die or perhaps the human race is rendered extinct, there is a clear sense in which it does seem to be a lesser evil. However, of course, this is morally very, very unsettling. Right? This looks like a less clear case, uh, at least more at stake, seems to be at stake than initially appeared. So here I think, and, oh sorry, and then there's a question of how low do we have to go, right? Especially if extinction is the relevant catastrophe, would a future where the human race survives but exists in a state akin to abject slavery, right? be acceptable, be a lesser evil, arguably, than extinction, but would it still be acceptable? So my complaint here is that the catastrophic baselines are too glib. They conceal more than they reveal and may beg the question. And the ethical disagreement, then, about whether geoengineering is justified as a lesser evil may be comprehensible. So a couple of last points now. Lesser evil arguments initially seem appealing, right? It can even seem something morally heroic about being able to say, I'm willing to do the thing that's necessary, especially to avoid catastrophe, even though it involves some kind of evil, some kind of serious negative, right? I'm willing to rise above that and recognize that sometimes the consequences are overriding, even if the objection is somewhat serious. But, here we should notice that we're getting in the realm where it matters that there are different senses of evil that might be at stake. Most of the time in policy circles, what people mean when they say something's evil or a lesser evil is just that it's something that other things being equal you shouldn't do, should be avoided. But there are deeper, more morally serious senses of evil. One is just that it's impermissible. Right? An evil is an evil and should not be done. So, for example, Immanuel Kant thought, infamously, that you shouldn't tell lies to the stormtrooper at your door even when he's asking you if you've got Jews in your attic. Right? That's an uncompromising attitude to committing evils. Most people reject it. Right? Most people think the consequences override in that case. But there are some points to notice, note about this. First, that if you have this sense of evil in mind, then lesser evil arguments just don't work from a logical point of view. Right? The fact that something's a lesser evil doesn't mean that you should do it, because evils are things that you shouldn't do. So it just doesn't work. Second, it's very hard to show what's gone wrong in an argument where somebody takes this impermissibility reading of what an evil is. And third, that there might be much more compelling examples than Kant's one of lying to the stormtrooper. Um, Maybe lying, telling the truth, doesn't seem such a serious moral constraint to us, but there might be other cases where we, regard, we want to regard some evil things as truly impermissible. One example I often use is, if you were told that to prevent some huge humanitarian catastrophe, you had to kill your grandmother in cold blood and against her wishes, right? I think a lot of people would say, I'm not doing it, <laughs> right? I'm sorry. I'm just not doing that kind of thing. And this points out that there's another category here beyond the impermissible of um, ways of thinking about evil, um, which is that some things might be 
unthinkable. They're not the sort of thing, as Bernard Williams tells us, that we should entertain, right, as an alternative. To do so is to regard it, is to do something dishonorable or morally absurd. Now, sometimes Williams thinks this means there are some things beyond the limits of ethics, right? And sometimes this is his sort of reaction to the grandmother type case. Right. If you're asking me to kill my grandmother in these situations, then I might th you might think there's still ethics, but I don't want anything to do with ethics anymore. I just can't, can't go there. But another thing that people sometimes think is that it's inappropriate to consider these things as an option under some kinds of circumstances, and that even under um, other kinds of circumstances, um, something deeply is going deeply wrong. And here I want to close with the observation that people actually have different attitudes even to evils that are regarded as necessary evils that you have to do. Some people take the attitude that as it says here, shit happens, right? If I have to do something morally lamentable to prevent a catastrophe, that's just a fact about the world, right? It's an unfortunate thing that happened, but you know, it's like water off a duck's back, right? It just happens. But some people take the attitude in ethical theory that's much more serious than that. If I have to do something that's a genuine evil, right, I do something that mars my life from the ethical point of view. And there's a classic case of this in the novel Sophie's Choice, right, where Sophie has to choose, is forced into a position where she must choose one of her children to save from the gas chamber. And she makes that choice. And it seems to her something that she morally you know, had to do. It was a lesser evil than just refusing to make any choice whatsoever. And yet the impact on her is very serious. You can read her words there. And, it, and in fact lead her to commit suicide ultimately because she can't cope with having become such a person who does such a thing. If these sorts of attitudes to evil are also lurking in the background, then many people will not be moved by the simple lesser evil argument. And they might regard what humanity is forced to do in um, moving to geoengineering as a deeply lamentable thing that shows things that we ought to regret and that deserve a lot more discussion than the initial glib emergency arguments suggest. Okay. So I'm out of time, so I'm going to miss those last two and just put my main claims are. I think we should distinguish between justificatory and contextual questions about geoengineering that we should reject the simple emergency arguments because they arbitrarily brush these aside, that both the justification and contextual questions require serious attention to ethics, and in the last part I tried to illustrate the interest of the contextual problem question in particular by looking at these three cases and drawing some conclusions from them. Thank you very much. Steve, so um, to kick off uh, a discussion, a broader discussion of the issues that Steve raises, we've got two quick 10-minute responses, and then we'll open it up uh, to audience questions. So the first one is Jim Falk, um, who is an honorary professorial fellow and affiliate of the Melbourne Sustainable Society Institute at the University of Melbourne. He was the founding director of the climate chain of climate change research for the Association of Pacific Rim Universities. World Institute and holds appointments also uh, visiting professor of the Institute of Advanced Studies, United Nations University, 
and an emeritus professor at the University of Wollongong, um, and uh, is sort of central to uh, uh, science and technology studies in Australia. Um, I'm terribly grateful for, to Steve for his stimulating and uh, really helpful presentation um, on some of the clearly great moral issues associated with uh, the most extreme types of geoengineering. Uh, and uh, he's clearly done that with forensic skill. Uh, and I think also uh, been forthright and courageous in the way he's um, sharpened those issues, um, especially with some of his examples. So uh, uh, thank you, Steve. Uh, I, I come at this in a somewhat different way. Uh, as I explained to Stephen earlier, um, my father was a philosopher. And I had philosophy at the dinner table almost every night. So it was only natural that I and his other sons actually all became something else. <laughs> I became a, a theoretical physicist. Um, and uh, it didn't really take me long, though, before I became a feral physicist and became fascinated with the capacity for uh, societies to use science to create outcomes which could be immensely bad as well as immensely good. And uh, in short, I became interested in science and technology studies. And uh, there my interest has remained one way or another. Now, as a non-philosopher, I do stress this, I make the lay observation that it seems to me that often in order to build a moral analysis, a very common approach by philosophers is to simplify the situation to the point that familiar moral understandings can then be applied. I think it's a very natural and sensible move. Um, so hence we have our gentleman who is free with his sexual activity and then we try to draw parallels with, with geoengineering and what people might do with that. But we do need to remind ourselves, of course, that this is a simplification for the purpose of drawing moral lessons, ethical lessons. So there's two bits of this sort of analysis I'd like to unpick. Um, and the first is that of geoengineering itself, which I'm sure Stephen is well aware of, that there are multiple techniques that come under this rubric of geoengineering. Um, and uh, I, I, I got it when you said you're, you're intervening in the early part of the debate, um, you're talking about the emergency claims, you're dealing with the the, the most, in a sense, outrageous proposals, or at least one or two of them, uh, stratospheric sulfur injection being the classic example. Um, but I count at least 46 classes of techniques or technologies that come under the rubric of geoengineering. The name geoengineering itself is not stabilised, and I'll talk about that in a moment. And there are, of course, multiple proposals within those classes uh, with different technical flavours, different social proposals and how they might be arranged. It's a broad, dynamic, sort of uh, boiling pot of different proposals. Um, and they form a very, they're very diverse. So they, uh, 
they stretch from quite small-scale things, as trivial as painting the roofs of buildings white, or reforestation, or put, making biochar and putting it in the ground, to putting reflectors in space surrounding the planet with dust uh, and other things, uh, sort of half-cooked proposals of that sort. Um, now, uh, just to, to make a word about the field itself, um, other names are in play, climate engineering. Uh, there's a big conference in Berlin in two weeks I'll be going to, which is on climate engineering. Um, to me, it's still a bit like nanotechnology. Um, remember, there, was a, there were government priorities for the development of nanotechnology. Um, there was all this stuff then about how we might have, you know, dusts that would be surveillance dusts at the nanoscale spread across our societies. There was, there was huge resistance uh, to some of these approaches and to nanotechnology. And what I found, because I had a, a smart master's student who did his master's degree under me uh, on this topic, um, was that when you talk to the nanotechnologists and interview them, uh, when, they're, uh, when they think that uh, this is government priority and we can put these techniques under the title nanotechnology and there's chance of good research funding, let's go for it. But when the problems get raised, we say, oh, no, 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 no. That's, that's, that's a misnomer, nanotechnology. Uh, look, we've, we've had nanoscale uh, uh, zinc in, in sun cream for de decades. Um, uh, these, these other things are just, you know, hypothetical, speculative things. We're, we're, we're just doing things at small scale using a variety of techniques and it's uh, to put under nanotechnology is just to uh, make it uh, uh, to sort of exaggerate. And I, I, I called it the smile on the Cheshire cat because as in Alice in Wonderland, the smile, the Cheshire cat would half materialise and as soon as the risks appeared it would sort of fully disappear. So um, now, coming back to then the spread of technologies, which go from very small scale and can be done at very local level, and we have the we have techniques anyway for governance of things at very small scale. Well, one could say, well, that's not really geoengineering because they're not affecting the planet in any significant sort of way. But of course we have policy means by which small-scale things can be articulated to affect the planet. So, for example, if you have an emissions, a global emission trading scheme or a national emission trading scheme and you agree to allow some of these techniques to be included as discounts against emissions, you've, you may well have uh, significant effects on the planet, but maybe by a di very diverse set of possibly much more local approaches. That's something we need to take into account because I think the ethical issues are somewhat different in relation to those. The second thing is that the techniques divide between two different categories typically. One is the sort that Steve's been talking about, which is in a sense shading the planet from solar radiation. The other is various means of trying to reabsorb carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, so-called carbon dioxide removal techniques. And there's at least as many proposals in the latter as the former. 
Um, generally, when you ask people about their concerns, they're much less concerned about removing carbon than the other, and I think there's some good reasons for that, although there are many criticisms that can be raised about some of the more extreme carbon dioxide removal techniques. You'll put the carbon dioxide somewhere. You're going to put it into huge caverns, and what happens if it leaks, or uh, so forth. Um, but in any case, uh, they stretch across scales from the local to the global. They stretch across what I would call leverage in terms of their impacts. Now, I agree with Steve that the emergency rhetoric which is wielded in the interests of this particular, uh, of the high leverage, high scale techniques um, is basically a coercive one, which, I don't know if you say that, but anyway, I think it's a coercive one that's trying to coerce uh, you into thinking about the technologies in a particular sort of way uh, and thinking about the situation which they're to be applied in a particular sort of way. Tomorrow I will talk much more about the emergency, the claimed emergencies, and how inappropriate the technologies are to dealing with realistic emergencies. Um, right now, I just want to say one more thing, and that is um, that there is another area of simplification, which is we. Now, I know Steve's aware of this, because I've seen read his papers, or read some of his papers, and I know that uh, sometimes we stands for me, sometimes it stands for just us, sometimes it stands for all of the public uh, institutions that make decisions. Um, but, of course, when you have organisations, they are not people. And people uh, participate in organisations in different ways from the ways they do in individual life. That's why organisations are effective. And, of course, there are other theories about how decisions are made in organisations, and they include economics and political dynamics and social psychology and, uh, and, all the, and sociology, uh, organisational theory and all the rest of it. But I would have to say that people who study organisations would not be in the least bit surprised to find that people have moral schizophrenia. They can hold two different moral propositions in their brains at the same time and do a third thing. Uh, in fact, I think they might just reply, yes, and your point is, because what they're trying to do is to work out how decisions are going to be made and within the context of human beings who are like that. And uh, it, people don't even make their decisions in what we would consider rational ways, if you look at Daniel Kahneman's work, for which he won the Nobel Prize in economics, he shows very clearly how irrational people can be, even experts, when they make decisions. So my comment should not be taken as any attempt to negate the really wonderful presentation I heard from Stephen, which I really found very stimulating. It's offered as a recognition that despite the clarity of his reasoning, Many other factors need to be considered which will be vitally important in determining the outcome of the battle over climate change and the role that the various technologies under the rubric of geoengineering may play. That's it. Jim, and finally, uh, also from the University of, uh, of Melbourne, uh, Lauren Rickards. Lauren is a critical human geographer, currently working as a research fellow 
at the Melbourne Sustainable Society Institute. She works on the socio-political and cultural aspects of sustainability uh, with a wide range of practitioner groups, and I won't actually read the entire list of practitioner groups. So we'll hear from Lauren, and then we'll open up the floor. Thank you, David, and thank you very much uh, to Stephen for a very stimulating uh, presentation and for all your work on enriching the conversation. And I just wanted uh, to take the opportunity to uh, highlight three of the aspects that you've talked about, that the framing, the narrowness of the framing, the uneven effects, and also the hypocrisy uh, that we see, which uh, we know too well to be a natural human condition. Uh, so first of all, just in terms of the, the narrowness of the framing, I couldn't agree more on that being a fundamental issue. And one of the things about geoengineering that always strikes me is that it actually simply points to the inappropriately narrow framing of climate change itself. So obviously climate change comes to us as a, a scientific discovery. But it seems that we seem to conflate the detection of the problem with the definition of the problem. So we then take what is the, the chain, the causal chain of um, cause and effect uh, that's presented through the very good science that comes to us, uh, and then we take that as the definition of the problem and try to formulate solutions within that. So of course, as you all know, that's the emissions leads to atmospheric concentrations, so a problem of chemistry, leading to climatic feedbacks, a problem of physics, and then leading to impacts, which generally begins as a problem of biology. So although you then have you know, a fantastic interdisciplinary array of, of sciences working there, we still nevertheless cut out, as your great Mark Johns cartoon showed, cut out most of the pie. We're only considering a very narrow part of it. And then when you think about geoengineering, well, it attacks those two middle sections. It attacks atmospheric concentrations through carbon dioxide removal techniques, and it attacks the climatic feedbacks by trying to cut out solar radiation and prevent some of those occurring. So it then further narrows that framing uh, once again. Of course, what we do then is we, we mistake the kind of detection of the problem, which is when emissions become detectable as a tangible material uh, process that science can detect with its measurements, as the starting point for the problem. Now, we all intuitively know that that's far from adequate, but by not systematically pointing that out, we lead ourselves into situations where the problem uh, leads to solutions, which is another cause and effect type mentality, problem needs solution, uh, within that narrow chain. So if we think about where emissions come from, we then step back one step, human activities, behaviours, where the human activities, behaviours come from, human systems, institutions, norms, and we quickly find ourselves talking about values and ethics. And so it's not simply that we need to insert ethics on top of this as a, as a kind of um, icing on the cake, we need to completely unpack the cake and rebake it, if you like, because ethics is the starting point. It's not something that needs to be inserted at the, at the end of the, of the debate. So that's, that would be my first point, just about the importance of what you're doing and really taking it to the, the fundamental uh, starting point of the whole climate change problem. Picking up on your um, point about the unevenness of the benefits too, 
If we think about some of the kind of um, stereotypical responses to climate change so far, not only do they come with words such as engineering, they often come with words such as markets, market solutions, market responses, the UN's big green economy agenda. Well, one of the sort of basic definitions of an economy is, of course, the distribution of differential access to scarce resources. What are we talking about when we're talking about geoengineering effects? We're talking about creating a differential access to good weather, to desirable weather, even if different actors have different understandings of that. So how far is it to then take the next step and say, well, what we're talking about is creating a weather market, a climate market. How long before the parochial engineering, the, the predatory engineering actually takes on a market form and actually then becomes simply part of the competitive kind of spirit, if you like, of modern life. And so, not to uh, suggest things, put things in the minds of any um, market uh, engineers around, but I'm sure that I wouldn't be the first to think that there are profitable opportunities in here, and it's not just in being part of the engineering firm that actually sets up the successful uh, geoengineering solutions. It's that broader shaping of a situation. Which is the third point I wanted to raise, um, which is around the hypocrisy. So analyses of the discourse around geoengineering uh, increasingly um, conclude that the number, one, um, uh, the number one division between those who are for or again, uh, against geoengineering is their views on the feasibility and desirability of social change. And if you believe that fundamental social change is desirable and feasible, you tend to reject geoengineering for the sorts of reasons that I've outlined as being fundamentally too narrow, dangerous, etc. If, however, you feel that social change of the sort that's required to change the systems, the institutions, the norms, the values that underpin the climate change problem, then you're actually uh, in a situation where you're advocating for something which uh, geoengineering advocates are probably going to say is too hard. But if we then take what I've suggested may be an outcome, which is the creation of a weather, a weather market, a climate market, that of course is world changing. So this is not geoengineering, it is world engineering. If we're going to engage in world engineering by stealth, then let's just engage in social change. Let's, not act, let's actually engage in the actual uh, root cause of the problem. And so I would suggest that perhaps we uh, try to beat the geoengineers at their own game, take the crisis rhetoric, the emergency rhetoric, which emotionally I feel uh, is kind of on the money, uh, not to use an economic metaphor, but, uh, <laughs> but nevertheless, let's take it, but let's fundamentally redefine it and redefine it as an emergency of social change and get on with the task of actually addressing climate change at its roots. So let's have some questions. I think we've got a roving mic. Yeah, hi. Yeah, the, the latest IPCC report did have discussions around geoengineering littered around like sulfate particles in various chapters. Uh, I just wonder what, what your view is on, uh, on the fact that, that, that those discussions were even in that report. Do you think there are some risks? Were there some benefits of that? I, th I think we're at the point where discussion, you know, open discussion of these things is a good thing. 
So I think it's probably appropriate for some of that discussion to be in the IPCC report. In the IPCC report in general, I wish, though they you know, tried to mention some of the ethical aspects, I wish there was more overt discussion of those things. Um, but I think given that we're seeing reports being prepared for governments and, and by governments and being discussed in scientific circles more generally, um, then I favor more open discussion rather than closing up. I think we've moved a long way in the last 15 years or so on that. Uh, and there was, of course, a, a huge debate within the IPCC uh, for support of geoengineering techniques. Um, the final... do not support geoengineering as a uh, strategy. Um, however, there is one um, comment I'd make, which is that in most of the scenarios which uh, lead to a two-degree warming at the end of the century, there is some element of overshoot and there is some amount of carbon capture and storage, usually uh, connected to some sort of uh, bioenergy. So bioenergy produces carbon dioxide, the carbon dioxide is, uh, is then captured and stored. Now, that BEX, as it's called, is part of the carbon dioxide removal uh, approach. It would fit under the category of geoengineering is considered by many to be one of the more benign of them, but you can make crit critique of it. Um, can I just go back to the, 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 uh, the other, which I thought was a very interesting question, just quickly, uh, and say so that I think you have to analyse why we have an international impasse on uh, effective global action um, when, of course, the scientific view on climate change is consolidating. Why China has acted strongly, and one of the reasons is that they're right at the cutting edge of, pollution, of atmospheric pollution. The sulphur loads in most provinces of China is over, way over World, World Health Organization um, recommended levels. And uh, the Chinese government knows that it's a matter of stability for their country to do something about atmospheric pollution, but also do something about um, what would happen if the, if the Himalayas melted, if, the, if their water supplies were destroyed and all the rest of it. So, I mean, um, there is some truth that if you go highly centralised technologies, you need highly centralised governments to control them. And if they've got to be controlled for millennia, then you're asking for a highly centralised, highly stable government for millennia. That isn't a very positive prospect, and it is one of the strong arguments against the high leverage, high scale geoengineering techniques. Thank you very much for an extremely stimulating presentation. Um, I think we need less economists and we need more philosophers. Um, the last respondent, I think, put it quite beautifully in terms of the way I think we have to respond to what I believe to be an existential challenge. And my question to you directly, Stephen, is that when the elites of the world, be they policy elites or business elites, also recognise that what we have is an existential problem, it's a problem related to human existence, and they decide to throw the kitchen sink and absolutely every other policy that they can muster at reducing the risks of this problem, 
Why do you think that they will go for geoengineering before actually going for a whole set of policies that we know can be applied at scale in terms of fuel switching, decarbonising your transport systems, etc.? These things can certainly be affected using existing technologies. They can be affected using policies that we could even point to now. Um, why do you think that people are going to be looking at such major geoengineering solutions? And that's, that's my question. I think we're a bit like Wayne, because the, the options you're listing are the, you know, I'm trying to put on the table as the A through R, at least. Um, and, I mean, it's not that I think we couldn't do it, I, I think we could, I agree with the Royal Society, we still could, um, but so far, unfortunately, my perfect moral storm explanation of the challenge seems to be hitting the mark as an explanatory framework um, for what has happened so far. And we need to get over that. We need to you know, raise ourselves to the ethical challenge. Um, and I mean, as a society or groups of societies around the world, particularly the free societies in, in the world, we need to show that we've got it in, our, in us you know, to create institutions, um, that will respond to a grave intergenerational and international challenge of this form. Um, we've not yet shown we're up to it. I think we are, but well, I think we are up to it. We just need to get over this temptation. Well, I, I, I hope that you are right <laughs> uh, in that I hope that obviously we, are, we do look at other options but I suppose um, one of the factors that um, I've been looking at through looking at some of the knowledge politics around this is this great um, emphasis on uh, return on investment, impact, policy impact, social relevance and some of the uh, broader more effusive changes that we need are those that are very, very difficult to prove impact of. And so one of the kind of things um, for geoengineering, I suppose, is that it has that sort of tangibility, even if the impacts themselves and the effects are going to be extremely diffuse. So I don't know the answer, but that is, is one of the issues, I suppose, that's, that's in play here. Uh, thank you. Thank you all for that. Um, that overview and outline. My question goes to the uh, cost effectiveness of, um, of geoengineering. Um, as, as I guess you will probably know, the Vattenfall uh, major power company had popularized a, uh, a, a sort of a cost cumula cumulation, cumulative curve and graph for the various um, conventional uh, mitigated techniques, you know, e.g. Um, cost of carbon dioxide abatement from bringing in nuclear, from bringing in carbon capture and sequestration for the very rich renewables for reforestation and so on. And so my question is, is um, has, um, uh, let's say, the, um, the technology of, um, of geoengineering, any parts of the technology of that reach a stage where people can attempt um, um, a similar Vattenfall or McKinsey um, uh, cost-effectiveness curve for, um, 
for uh, the various uh, geoengineering uh, techniques. Well, I guess two things. One thing I should say is in general, and I've got a chapter about this in my book, I'm very skeptical about um, cost-benefit um, calculations in this kind of setting when you're dealing with a major global and intergenerational problem. I just don't think we have uh, either a, a grip on the raw numbers of costs and benefits and how they're distributed across time or the theoretical techniques to bring them back to the present. So I think it, it's, it's, it's a nightmarish game to try to do it. But the second thing I would observe is some people do claim that stratospheric, stratospheric sulfate injection is very cheap because you need to just put, you know, a few tons of sulfate into the um, stratosphere. You can, people have researched how many planes or how many cannons you would need to get it up there and so on. And they do routinely make the claim that it's, it's cheap, especially relative to the scale of the problem. But my reaction to that has always been that it's a bit like, uh, a bit like doing a cost-benefit analysis on me doing brain surgery on you um, by saying, well, how much is it going to cost to give Steve a knife? Right. Um, it's just totally the focus in the wrong place there. Because I, I suggest, even though it's really cheap to give me a knife, you shouldn't let me do brain surgery. And, and if you take, I mean, there have been, there's quite a, quite a literature on this, but if you take the stratospheric sulfate injection, um, first of all, you have to realise it does nothing about the acidification of the oceans. Secondly, you have to realise that it, des it destroys ozone. Thirdly, you have to realise it doesn't distribute uniformly across the planet. There'll be a hundred times higher concentrations at the poles with all sorts of implications from that. Fifthly, you have to realise that it doesn't um, cool the planet in the same way that the greenhouse gases are warming it because It'll shield sunlight during the day, but it does nothing about the trapped heat at night, and so it makes the difference between night and day, on average, less. And f f wherever we are, whatever number it is, the effects across the planet are completely non-homogeneous, and therefore there'd be all sorts of issues of compensation, if you can do a costing, across all sorts of factors. If you try and pull that together, you probably get nonsense, I would think. And one last question. Thank you, and uh, thanks to all the speakers for a fascinating set of in interventions. I just wanted to ask a question about the work that ethics is doing in the construction of geoengineering, because it's striking that the debates about geoengineering have, have, right from the start, indicated some of the tenor of the ethical dimensions of geoengineering. That's a striking feature, and this is, I guess there's this figure of the kind of anguished geoengineer, the, oh, gosh, I shouldn't have to be thinking about these things, but I, but I am. The sort of the, the reluctant geoengineer, the anguished geoengineer. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could perhaps venture some thoughts about what, what, what work that's doing in the construction of, of, of a notion of a kind of climate emergency, or indeed the notion of controlling the thermostat of the Earth. Yeah, good question. Um, yeah, well, in general, I, I think that, you know, all these big policy questions um, ultimately have to have values you know, behind them to generate answers. So I think in one way it's not a surprise. But I'm alive to what you're saying here about this specific context. I, th I think it does cause a challenge for scientists, an ethical challenge, and in some ways they're aware of it. It's easy to think that some scientists at least you know, want to grab the 
the, the gauntlet of um, we're going to save the world in response to this crisis and we can do something. Um, and part of that ambition to save the world comes out of um, a serious appreciation of the plight that we may be in with respect to climate change. So it, it deserves some ethical respect. But I also think some of the worries that I've been talking about here help to explain why some scientists are so resistant to be reluctant about geoengineering and sort of stirred up about it ethically. Because I think for some scientists, though they can see the background possibility of an ethical imperative involving a climate emergency, like me, they see the risk that it could, geoengineering could actually make things worse. And they don't want to be complicit in that. You know, I think some scientists that just don't want to put their life's energy into, um, into providing options that, that may end up resulting in morally indecent outcomes. In particular, I think some, when they've spent a lot of life energy trying to put some of the options A through X <laughs> on the table, <laughs> right? Um, so I, I think there are good reasons why scientists themselves are um, ethically vexed by all this. And it's just not clear what to do. And I think that's one of the disservices of the emergency and lesser evil arguments. It doesn't pay respect to the real quandaries that, that many scientists face, which I am in deep sympathy with them about, actually. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Matt. I think um, a lot of the uh, debate about geoengineering is characterised by a higher degree of reflexivity on the behalf of the scientists involved than uh, is normal. So there's a kind of a learning that's gone on, if you like, about, well, we know that um, our scientific pronouncements about climate change tend to provoke a range of uh, dissatisfied responses, so we're going to kind of preempt that with uh, putting on the table the risks, the uncertainties, etc. So I think there's sort of a couple of ways of reading that. The, the kind of, um, you know, a favourable reading of that uh, is to, I think it stems a little bit from a realisation of the limits of their own knowledge, uh, you know, coming to the, the limits of scientific knowledge, but the limits too of kind of the scientific role uh, and kind of a call for help, if you like, to say, look, you know, this is a big question for society. We need engagement, and so I think that's something that we can respond positively to. Uh, less favourably, perhaps, you know, you could read it as um, a kind of uh, pretend reflexivity, if you like. So a kind of look we've considered. We realise this is risky. We realise this is um, questionable. Nevertheless, we feel it needs to be one of the options on the table fully realising that the options that the scientists put on the table uh, within that narrow framing of climate change as a scientific emissions concentration impacts problem uh, actually is only a, a narrow part of the pie. So while it sort of extends that section of the pie slightly, it still, uh, I think, distracts from the rest of the pie that's missing. So there's sort of two ways to go about it and perhaps the first thing is to jump in there uh, at any sign of that um, uncertainty and say yes, 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 how about we add 80% more social scientists to the IPCC. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, that's a good note to end on. Um, so I want to thank Steve, I want to thank Jim and Lauren as well. Join me in thanking them.